Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, my name is Abby Odio. I'm a pastor here. Uh, if you're anything like me, your day um, ended last night with the tragic news of the mass shooting that happened in El Paso, Texas. And then early this morning, of course, news um, of another shooting that happened in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and I woke up at 4.30. I saw the notification on my phone, and it was just heartbreaking. It was, it was numbing. It was overwhelming. It was angering. Um, it's a, a level and an expression of violence that I think violates the humanity in all of us. Um, and this morning, we look at this ancient book of Jonah, uh, coming to it with the very real circumstances of the world that we're living in in this moment. Uh, we come to this ancient text with that age-old question, God, what does hope look like? What is hope? And not just where is it and what is it, but actually how, God, do we move forward as your people with a calling in a world marred with such profound expressions of hate? Like, what is our calling in this? And so, um, thankfully, the book of Jonah has some profound insight into that very question, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. So as we go there, I'd invite you to pray with me. Jesus, in this moment, we are mindful of... Uh, the burdens that mar our world. We're mindful of violence that at times feels rampant and overwhelming. God, we trust that somehow you are a God who is over and above and in all, and yet even in our trust, we are confused in moments. So God, we acknowledge that this morning. We um, come to your, your holy word, your holy text, and we ask that you would speak to us that you would inspire us, that you would give us a sense of hope. And not just give us hope, but shape us in such a way that we would indeed be people of hope in your world that you love. Amen. So I'm going to begin our time today uh, framing this text that we've just heard read around a specific and somewhat puzzling question that we see throughout the Bible uh, for the first time, it occurs following the event where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that they're told not to eat. Many of you will know this story. Genesis 3 tells us that they do this, they eat the forbidden fruit, and then they go and attempt to hide from God. And in response to this, God enters into the garden where they're hiding and calls out to Adam with this very curious question. He says this, where are you? Where are you? It's a curious question for God to ask because if you believe God to be the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, it would seem odd that he's somehow stumped in this sort of elementary game of hide-and-seek. I have an almost two-year-old son. Uh, we play hide-and-seek quite often. It's one of his favorite games. And so far, his favorite hiding spot is literally the center of our living room. Like he doesn't even bother to stand behind a chair. And he laughs and he squeals while I walk around the rest of the house asking, where are you? Where are you? Full well the entire time knowing precisely where he is. The point is this, I don't ask that question for my own sake because I know the answer. I ask the question for Mark's sake. I ask it because it makes the game more fun for him. And in a similar but much more serious and profound way, this is precisely what we see happening in Genesis 3. God did not need to ask Adam where he was, but it was Adam who needed to be asked. 
It was Adam who needed to be asked. In the Jewish tradition, there's a period of time, an extension of 10 days between uh, the holidays known as Rosh Hashan, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. There's a 10-day span in between those holidays that are called the 10 days of repentance. And during this window of time, one of the central questions for reflections, uh, reflection in the Jewish community is this, Ayeka, Ayeka, which is the single Hebrew word that means, where are you? Where are you? One rabbi explains why this time of reflection is so important. He says this, that question and our answer are meant to puncture the hidings, the evasions, and self-deceptions that blind us both to the ways we have made progress and also the ways we have fallen short. The main danger in this yearly questioning is our desire, like Adam and Eve, our ancestors, to hide rather than answer, to flee rather than face, to evade rather than accept responsibility for what we have done or left undone. Our lesson to be learned is the same lesson learned by Adam and Eve, hiding does not work. Now, of course, uh, this notion of fleeing, of hiding, of evading, that question, where are you, it brings us to this text today from Jonah chapter one. You'll remember in the first few verses in the story, Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh and bring God's message uh, of mercy to this very evil city. It's important to note that Nineveh wasn't just some nation with whom Israel had kind of a civil religious disagreement. That wasn't it at all. It was the mortal enemy of Israel. Uh, Their fundamental purpose was to destroy the people of Israel and their way of life. It's uh, to this place that God says to Jonah, go. And as we saw last week, Jonah essentially says no. And he boards this ship bound for Tarshish, which is um, in that day and that time, the end of the known world. It was literally as far away uh, as a person could go from Nineveh. Verse three indicates that Jonah set out believing this journey would take him far from God's presence. But in the same way God enters into the garden and finds Adam and Eve, God seems to know precisely where Jonah is because he hurls a great wind and a mighty storm directly at Jonah's ship. And in a profound way, this storm, it represents, it embodies, it confronts Jonah in a seemingly the only way he can hear it with this question, Jonah, where are you? Where are you? And so today, as we look at this snapshot from Jonah's story, we'll consider that same question on Jonah's behalf. Where are you? Where are we? Where am I? And then sort of use this as a compass as we consider the question in our own story, what might it mean for us to live into our calling as God's people? So we begin with this notion that the storm reveals Jonah's apathy. These points are in your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first point is this, the storm reveals Jonah's apathy. That word apathy implies indifference or an utter lack of interest. Uh, Perhaps one of the ways um, I've experienced this most acutely is via our dog Ronan. Uh, He's a lovely dog. I love him for a lot of reasons, mostly because he's not a cat. Um, He has other redeemable qualities as well. 
But at the end of the day, he frustrates me to no end because he doesn't listen to me. He takes direction only from my husband, Sam. And in his old age, this seems to uh, be getting worse. Not only does he not listen, he doesn't so much as lift his head when I call him. He doesn't care and doesn't seem to care that he doesn't care. Now, I care, as you can tell. I actually took him to the vet recently and I said to the vet, is there any possible way he's perhaps going deaf or blind or maybe a combination of the two? And the vet looked at me and said, no, he's, he's just apathetic. And then he said, particularly towards you. And I said, maybe it's time to get a cat. Um, so in a way, this is Jonah's posture. He doesn't seem to care that he doesn't care. Right? He's entirely apathetic to God's storm, a storm sent precisely to get his attention. You'll notice as the story progresses, the storm actually builds in intensity. Verse 4 tells us there was a great storm on the sea. Then verse 11 reads, for the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And then finally, verse 13, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. And eventually, the storm builds to a level of intensity that causes the sailors, who have certainly seen a storm or two in their day, the storm builds to a point that they actually attribute this particular storm to a higher power. All that's to say is it progresses, the author makes it clear God is expressing his power. He's expressing his power and greatness with increasing measure in order to gain Jonah's attention. Now, keeping that in mind, let's focus for a moment on what Jonah is doing. Namely, he's moving in altogether a different direction. In verse three, we're told Jonah goes down to Joppa. In verse five, the storm picks up where we read, Jonah has gone down into the hold of the ship. And then once at the very bottom of the ship, we're told he lies down. Now it's an important to name here that the use of language, in, especially in this book of Jonah, is not at all accidental. Right? The author is intentionally repeating certain words in order to reveal something about the dynamic between God and Jonah. As the power, the revelation, the greatness of God is seen with greater clarity through the storm, instead of responding to that revelation with obedience or surrender, or even like the pagan sailors with a desperate curiosity, here's Jonah, take me down as low as I can go, as far down as I can go away from God, and once I'm there, watch this, I'll take it a step further, I'll fall asleep. And the text here indicates this isn't just any sleep, it's actually a deep, deep sleep. He's entirely apathetic. Now, in some ways, Jonah's story is so extreme, it's, it's so exaggerated that it's easy for us, it's easy for me to identify as apathy without drawing any direct correlation to our stories or to the story of our community. Surely if God were to call us in such a direct way with such clear expectation, we would go. We would not fall into unconscious apathy like Jonah. I get that, and it's precisely this mode of thinking that makes the temptation of apathy one that we have to be particularly aware of. In answer to that question, where are you, the problem with apathy is that it convinces us I'm right where I'm supposed to be, when that's not actually the case. In the fourth century, there were a group of people called the Desert uh, Fathers and Mothers. These uh, folks were monastics. They literally moved into the desert to pursue a Christ-like life in a more simple environment. 
And these monastics, they identified an attitude that can easily invade the human spirit, which they call acedia. Acedia was understood to be a voice of the mind that convinced you that there was a better way out there than God's way. It's a voice the monastics warned that would cause you to to devalue your most important vocation and calling, replacing it instead with discouragement, boredom, ultimately disengagement. It's a deep spiritual sleep, a deep spiritual apathy. The fourth century month of, of Gravis warned that acedia is the vice that causes the most serious trouble of all. In essence, he said, because it's sneaky, because it invades our minds and our hearts slowly and often unconsciously, so that the storm of all storms can be raging outside and we simply go on with life undisturbed. God's trying to get our attention, we do not hear. The theologian and mystic Kathleen Norris authored a book called Acedia and Me, in which she breaks down the moderate expression of this particular temptation. Now I'm paraphrasing here, but the heart, this is the kind of the heart of what she says. She says, we live in a world where we're hit by endless messages of advertising that engender dissatisfaction. This drives us to live highly structured, multitasking lives in pursuit of filling that dissatisfaction. So on the surface, we appear hardworking and anything but apathetic, but that is precisely what we are. And now I'm quoting from Norris. She writes, in the end, we do more and care less and feel pressured to still do more. See, the problem is not that God has made his calling for our church any less clear than he made it to Jonah in the ancient times. As Richard emphasized last week, Micah 6.8 makes it abundantly clear. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. We have that calling to live by, and yet, as Kathleen Norris points out, it's so easy for us to get caught up with the minutia of our own life, with routines of pursuing more, be it more wealth or comfort or beauty or more likes or more entertainment, to believe the lie of consumerism, which tells us we're always one purchase away from completeness, one promotion away from wholeness. Meanwhile, our faith calling is reduced to a moralistic sort of list of don'ts. And we think, well, as long as I don't cheat on my wife, as long as I don't, don't gossip too much, as long as I don't you know, miss church more than a few times a month, then I'm doing it. Then I'm living the life that I'm called to live. And here is God in the storm getting louder and louder. No, I have more Jonah. I have more Bethany. I have more Abby. This isn't it. This weekend is Seafair in Seattle as many of you know, and because of that, the Blue Angels have been out all weekend. Has anybody braved the crowds? Okay, me either. Um, so on Friday, I was home with our son, Mark, and I kept hearing the Blue Angels fly over our home, and I was really excited for him to get to see them for some reason. Uh, so every time I would hear them, I'd rush outside and try to catch a glimpse of them. Well, it turns out we did this about three times, but we weren't just fast enough. We weren't fast enough, and we'd miss them every time. However, we live south of here, close, closer to the airport. And um, at any given moment, there's always a plane in the sky near our house. So every time we'd run outside, we'd look up in the air and there would be like a passenger plane taking off or landing. And so Mark, knowing that we were looking for something exciting, would point to like a Boeing plane and say, wow, <laughs> as if that were the thing that we'd run outside to see. 
See, in a way, this is the nature of apathy. It convinces us that we're watching the Blue Angels when really we're just watching another jet take off from SeaTac. Convinces us we're embodying God's kingdom through our lives when really we're kind of asleep like Jonah. Friends, hear this. The storm isn't punishment for God's anger. Like this isn't another vengeful Old Testament God doing his thing. No, this storm is loaded with grace. This storm is God's way of helping Jonah locate himself, helping Jonah move from his apathy into his calling. See, the question the text invites us to consider this morning is where are you? Where are you just going through the motions, pursuing more but caring less? Man, that resonates with me. I have to tell you, yesterday I read the news of the shooting in El Paso on my phone. I was actually kind of working on this sermon and I was immediately tempted to pull up Instagram instead. Like, give me puppies, give me babies, give me friends at Seafair having fun. I don't want to read about this. And because I've been seeped in Jonah all week, I could hear God's words, I care about this, Abby. I care about Nineveh. Where are you? Don't fall asleep. That brings us to the second point revealed in Jonah's story, which is this. Jonah's apathy is grounded in his misinterpretations. Jonah's apathy is grounded in his misinterpretations. And as we'll see, uh, sorry, misperceptions. As we'll see, these misperceptions exist towards both God and others. They exist towards both God and others. Let's focus for a moment on verse 8 where the sailors realize Jonah's presence on the boat is the reason for the storm. See, unlike Jonah, God has the sailors' attention and they want to know more. So they ask Jonah, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? Now again, keeping in mind that the author of Jonah is extremely intentional with language, this is how Jonah responds. He says, first, I am Hebrew. And then after offering his ethnic identity, he discloses the source of his worship, saying, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, one scholar comments on the significance of this order. We've got to pay attention to this. He says, since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his identity. Now, here is why that matters. As we see with Jonah, his primary identity as a Hebrew informs every other perception that he holds about who God is, about how he interacts with the world. The most important thing Jonah believes about himself is that he is Hebrew, and so he projects his Hebrew bias onto God, believing that God hates who he hates. God hates who the Hebrews hate, unable to fathom a God who could care for the well-being of Nineveh, especially after what they've done to his people. See, friends, it's easy to misperceive God by imagining a God that looks a lot like us, that talks a lot like us, that values what we value, that votes how we vote, that is essentially us, but kind of a nicer version of us. We do this, I do this, instead of saying, my primary identity is as your child, God, and therefore I give myself to be shaped by you like clay in the hands of a potter, to be shaped by your ways, I will project less and listen more. We say, no, I will listen less and project more. Let me tell you who you are, God. I had a birthday several months back and 
as this birthday was approaching, um, something tragic happened, not actually, my hairdryer broke. Uh, this is not a story you'll ever hear Richard tell. I admit I'm a little more high maintenance than he is, aren't we all? Um, <laughs> but my hairdryer broke, and so I was looking, you know, trying to find a hairdryer to buy or whatever, and I found this one that was like kind of fancy, like way more than I'd ever spend on a hairdryer, and, um, but it dried your hair in half the time and had all these perks, so knowing that my birthday was coming, I kept dropping hints to my husband, Sam, like, hey, there's this fancy hairdryer. It's really cool. Uh, it would be a splurge for me. I don't know. Here's the name of the brand in case you're curious. Uh, so the week of my birthday arrives and Sam is so excited. We're not big gift givers. Like sometimes we don't do gifts at all, but he is so excited. He can hardly stand it about this particular gift. And I'm like, perfect. Um, and so it's a few days before my birthday, and he says, I, I just can't wait. I've got to give you your gift. We're having friends over that night. You're going to want to use it, right? Um, so he goes to the closet. He has me close his eyes. I open my eyes. Literally, he's holding a vacuum. <laughs> now, Sam is beaming like he is overjoyed. And I have to tell you, never in our relationship have I been so thoroughly confused. He says, they had it at Costco, can you believe it? To which I say, it's a vacuum, of course they had it at Costco. <laughs> Not my best moment. See, clearly there was a miscommunication somewhere along the way. Uh, we figured out after some debrief um, that <laughs> Sam swears he heard me say I wanted a vacuum. Uh, the vacuum and the hairdryer were actually the same brand. I swear Sam wanted the vacuum cleaner and projected that desire onto me and acted accordingly, to which I could only say, project less and listen more. <laughs> but you understand the point, assuming my take on the story is correct, which will do because I'm the one telling it, <laughs> we have a tendency with God to construct this sort of caricature of God that strangely resembles our own wants. This is precisely what Jonah has done, and now he is unable to fathom a God who would extend mercy to his enemies, to those he dislikes. In those guiding words from Micah 6.8, the prophet instructs Israel, he says, uh, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. That word humble is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as lowly. In other words, a significant part of our calling is to walk, in a sense, below God. Like, to assume a posture of submission to God's values and God's ways, to let God inform who we are becoming instead of misperceiving God in a self-interested way that leads to apathy, not obedience, leads to violence, <laughs> leads to division, leads to our country in the year 2019, and friends, part of the reason why it's so important that we get this right is because our misperceptions of God will inevitably lead us to hold misperceptions of others, Misperce misperceptions that perpetuate instead of end violence, misperceptions that counter hope. Notice the sailors on the boat are doing everything they can possibly think of in order to save the ship, and Jonah is deeply unconcerned with their collective fate. Deeply apathetic, not just towards God, but also towards the people around him. Thus, the, the only way to rightly perceive others, to carry out that great command, love God, love your neighbor, is first and always about rightly perceiving God, about letting God be God. 
And until we, as God's image bearers, can rightly perceive God, we'll never be able to get to Nineveh. Never be able to love our enemy, bridge the gap of hate that is pervasive and, as we've seen, deadly in our world. One of my favorite theologians is a Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber, who has written a lot about how it is that we relate to God and to others. And Buber articulates there are really two sort of ways, two categories of relating to people. There's the I-it category in which I perceive others as an object, as an it, only to be engaged with as it meets my own personal needs. Or, he writes, there's the category of I-thou, I-thou, whereby I relate to others as subjects instead of objects, as people created in the image of God, deeply loved by God. And Buber concludes that our only hope of relating to others as a thou is by first existing in relationship with God who transforms our vision of the other. He says it this way. He says, when two people relate to each other authentically and humanly, God is the electricity that surges between them. In other words, we have to perceive and relate to God as he really is if we have any hope of seeing truly others as a thou and not an it. About a week ago now, Sam and I had the unfortunate experience of um, having both of our cars stolen from outside of our home in the middle of the night. Now, uh, all is well. We're grateful we have insurance, aside from just the minor inconveniences. But what I was struck by through this experience, uh, what caught me sort of by surprise, was how angry I felt initially towards the person who had done this. Now, anger's not really my MO. I'm more of like melancholy, write a poem, um, <laughs> So it, it, it did, it caught me off guard. Anger isn't necessarily a bad emotion, but in my anger, I had all sorts of thoughts and perceptions about who this person was, about why they'd done this. Fast forward about 12 hours after the car goes missing, we get a call from the Seattle police saying they found the car. Uh, one of the vehicles had been driven off a cliff uh, or a, into a ravine, cliff's dramatic. Uh, <laughs> but it was totaled and it was down there pretty far and so um, they asked if we could come and, and arrange for a tow truck. So we did this, takes a couple hours, the tow truck gets the car out of the ravine and we start going through. We find all sorts of things in there um, but what had happened, it looked like it had actually been an accident so they hadn't done this intentionally and as a result they'd kind of fled the scene and this person had left their backpack in our car. So I quickly take it out. Again, I'm angry. I'm in like Sherlock Holmes mode, like justice will be served. And um, in it, we find several items, including a notebook, which I open and I start to read. And there's a single journal entry on the first page. It says goals. And underneath, this person had written, get ready for baby Simon's visit, build him a train set, detox in enough time to do a really good job. And in that moment, it was like, God softened me. Oh yeah, mercy and justice. Oh yeah, this is a person made in your image with the capacity to love and exercise goodness. Oh yeah, not my will, God, but your will be done. Oh yeah, it's easy to hate an it, but God, you've called me to love a thou. I can be upset. I can desire justice. That's an okay thing to do. But here's what I can't be. I can't be apathetic. I cannot misperceive this person as the sum of their actions. 
See, part of the irony of the book of Jonah is that the guys who we would assume are the bad guys, the Ninevites and the pagan sailors, they are actually the ones who get it right, who respond to God. Meanwhile, it's the Israelite prophet, the man of God who misses God. And so, of course, this story invites us to consider as individuals and as a community, where do we hold misperceptions? Who do we not see as a thou? In our city, you know, in our world, in our neighborhood, in our office, in our school, in our places of work, in our homes. If we align our life first and foremost by God's priorities, who would God have us see that we're not seeing? So the storm reveals Jonah's apathy, which is grounded in misperceptions about who God is. We see this in our own stories. And so the essential question then becomes, how do we move from a place of apathy to engagement with our calling, from misperception to to rightly seeing God and seeing others? Well, to answer that question, we'll wrap up with an important command. We see three times in the story of Jonah and twice in chapter one. This is the third point. The command is this, arise, arise. The very first word God speaks to Jonah is this command. He says, arise, go to Nineveh. Then in verse six, as Jonah sleeps, the captain of the boat speaks to Jonah saying, sleeper, arise. And finally in chapter three, the word of the Lord again comes to Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh. Now that particular command, arise, it's not actually unique to this book. If we survey the New Testament, we find the same command spoken to Jonah by God is used by Jesus himself often as an invitation for a person to experience literal new life. This is the case in Luke 7 when Jesus brings to life the widow's only son saying, young man, arise. This is the case in Luke chapter 8 where Jesus brings to life Jairus' daughter saying, child, arise. These are just two of several similar examples that we see in the text. Now that becomes significant for us as we consider Jonah's story because we see the biblical command arise does not merely indicate go and do. It's not exclusively an imperative to act. This is really important. Rather, this word implies, it points to something altogether new at work within us. It's not just a command to action. It's a statement about our very identity. Think about it this way. The widow's son and Jairus' daughter, neither of them could have followed this command to arise if they first hadn't received something, namely life from Christ. Their ability to follow depended fully on Christ's decision to give. Do you see that dynamic? So in a way, this command, it's passive before it's active. Arise, it requires we receive before we go, that we be before we do. The going is certainly important and we can't lose sight of it, but it's not where we begin. Thus, more importantly than what Jonah does in this story is the question, who is Jonah becoming? Is he becoming the kind of person who knows God in such a way, is bound to God in such a way, has received life from God in such a way that he can let misperceptions go and love Nineveh well, love his neighbors well, love enemies well, gosh, love the shooters well. Friends, that's the gospel without feeling threatened or superior, condescending, can he truly arise from his sleep? I briefly mentioned at the start of this sermon that my uh, son loves to play hide and seek. We'll put it in quotes, hide and seek. Um, 
And one of the things I've come to appreciate is that for Mark, the game is not at all a contest. Like, it's not a competition. I'm very competitive. It took me a while to get on board with this. Um, But he loves hide and seek for the single reason he loves to be found. He loves it. The moment I come around the corner, he's standing in the middle of the living room and he completely lights up. He'll literally do this little dance on his tiptoes like there's no containing the kid's joy in that moment. And friends, the real tragedy of Jonah is that he never really learns that dance. He never really learns to be found. He never really learns to live in such a life-giving relationship with God that he's then free and empowered to go wherever God calls him to go willingly, to bless the world, to let God be God instead of projecting his wants and hopes onto God and then disappearing into the abyss of his own ego. And so this morning as we close, we end with that same question, where are you? This journey of hope begins not with trying harder to care more, to overcome our apathy. It's not about fighting harder against our perceived enemy, but rather in allowing ourselves to be found. Found with all our misperceptions and projections and meet God in that place, arising with new life, a new hope, a new way of being and loving and seeing the world. And that brings us appropriately to this table, to this meal that as many of us know, Jesus shared with his very closest friends on the final night of his life. If you think about it, those very friends would go on in the coming hours to do what? Well, to betray him, to run off. Their own brokenness, their own misperceptions would become terribly apparent. And yet Jesus sat there with them and saw them as a thou, despite all that. He saw them and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And in a similar way, he took the cup and he poured the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And then he said, as often as you come together and do this, as often as you come together and eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Remember that in the face of violence, I didn't fight. (laughs) I could have, but I didn't. That I didn't come as a a Roman king with a sword. I came as a baby. Remember that in your brokenness, I gave my life for you. And so this morning as we receive this meal, as we share in it, I'm going to invite you just to sit with that question for a moment. I'll invite our ushers forward at this time. Um, to sit with that question for a moment, where are you? To answer it honestly. To really get at the core, where, what misperceptions do you hold? Where do you see an it instead of a thou? Be with God in that place, and then come forward and receive the good news. Receive Christ who gave himself for us and promises to make us new. I'm going to pray for us, and then our ushers will pass around uh, first the bread, which is gluten-free, and then the cup. Um, Feel free to take them on your own time. You don't need to wait for us. Uh, Let's pray together as we receive the Lord's meal. Jesus, we thank you uh, for these elements. 
We thank you that they represent more than what we see before us. God, that your love for us was such that nothing could stop you from finding us. Nothing could stop you from meeting us in the bottom of the ship where we'd fallen deeply, deeply asleep. God, I pray that our apathy would not stop us from self-reflection. Show us this morning the parts of our heart where we need you the most. Give us courage to go there, trusting that your grace, your body, your life will be fully sufficient. And not only sufficient for us, but for this world which you love, that will, it will empower us to indeed be people who see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.